You are now listening to the February 26th broadcast of Unity in Christ. This hour, we have Nearer to My God to Thee, the sermon, and Equipping the Saints. First, let's begin with Nearer My God to Thee. It's John Backus from the program Nearer My God to Thee. One day, I read this in a newspaper. According to a research study, 40% of the things we worry about never happen. 30% worry about things that have already happened. 22% worry about things that are of no consequence. And 4% worry about things that cannot be changed no matter how much we stress over it. A total of 96% is unnecessary worry. There is a saying that goes... If worrying about something takes the worry away, then I would worry. This is talking about the unnecessary aspect of worry. Even worldly people say that worry is unnecessary. What about Christians? If worldly people say not to worry, since worrying won't solve anything, then shouldn't we as Christians who trust in God likewise free ourselves from worry? Jesus said something similar. He said, Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? Of course, Jesus isn't saying what the worldly people are saying about not to worry, since worrying won't solve anything. Jesus is saying, since we can't do it, and Jesus can do it, we must trust him and not worry. When we look back on our lives, we live obediently to his word day by day. Then we come to trust on the Lord. By trusting on the Lord, our faith will grow. When faith develops, the things that used to worry us no longer become a worry. This is how we continually grow stronger in the Lord. In today's Nearer My God to Thee, we will introduce the hymn, God Will Take Care of You, which is related to this topic. First, let's listen to the hymn. Be not dismayed, whatever God will take care. God will take care of you. 
Here is the first verse. Be not dismayed, whate'er betide. God will take care of you. Beneath his wings of love abide. God will take care of you. This hymn encourages us to not worry, since we trust that the Lord will take care of us. This hymn was written by Pastor Walter Martin and his wife, Sivilla Martin. What kind of situation was this couple in that made them write this hymn? Let's find out through a drama. In 1904, Pastor Walter Martin and his wife lived in New Jersey. One day, they took their nine-year-old son with them to visit a Bible school in New York. Although his wife's health was not good, he could not cancel the visit because he was going to help David, the school principal, compile a collection of hymns. The Martin family temporarily lived in a house near the school and worked on the hymnal collection. Unfortunately, as time passed, Mrs. Martin's illness got worse and she was eventually bedridden. Pastor Walter decided to keep watch over his bedridden wife even if he had to stop the hymnal collection work. One day, a church requested Pastor Walter to preach the Sunday service sermon. This was a day when his wife's condition wasn't good. Dear, your health is not good so I think it's best that I turn down the sermon request. Dear, I'm so sorry. It's all because of me. No, don't worry. A sermon is important, but right now it'll be more helpful for me to be by your side. I'll go and tell them my situation about not being able to preach. While the Martin couple had a discussion about turning down the request to preach, their nine-year-old son was also with them. After hearing his parents' conversation, the son spoke to them. Father, if God wanted you to preach, then wouldn't he keep watch over mother while you're preaching? Pastor Walter was astonished at what his son said. He realized that God was speaking through his son. At that moment, he began to pray. Lord, my faith is weak and I feel so inadequate. Lord, please forgive me. Thank you for allowing me to trust in you through my young son. Yes, God, you have taken care of me until now. But because of this illness, I have not trusted in you. You are with me, but I did not depend on you. I was consumed with worry and concern. Now, I will completely trust and depend on you. Thank you for using my son to strengthen my faith. Pastor Martin's wife also listened to what her son said and realized that it was God talking. Then she prayed before the Lord. After praying, Pastor Martin believed that God would take care of his wife and went to preach. After preaching, Pastor Martin returned home joyfully. Then his wife handed him a poem. What is this, dear? Did you write a poem in your condition? While you were away preaching, I was deeply moved. 
I was ashamed that we didn't trust the Lord. I was also so thankful that He used our Son to make us realize this truth. I wrote a poem with such feelings. Be not dismayed, whatever betide, God will take care of you. Beneath His wings of love abide, God will take care of you. Through days of toil when heart doth fail, God will take care of you. When dangers fierce your path assail, God will take care of you. After receiving his wife's poem, Pastor Martin sat in front of a piano. Then he added a melody to the poem and began singing. That song was, God Will Take Care of You. At first, the Martin couple didn't completely leave their worry and concern to the Lord. However, God touched them, and they were able to completely leave all their worries and concerns to God. God allowed their faith to grow. In order for our faith to grow, we need time and experience. Therefore, don't give up and always seek the Lord. Embrace Jesus Christ. When we do, our faith will grow. Here is 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 7. Cast all your anxiety on him, because he cares for you. We'll end nearer my God to thee. I'll see you next week.
Coming up next is a sermon by Pastor Mark Martin of Calvary Phoenix in Phoenix, Arizona. Today's topic is Real Life. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor Mark. So let's look at Acts chapter 4, and we're going to look at uh, verses 32 through 35. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And it says, verse 34 There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. So you you see this life in the church, caring, sharing. Now, the same picture is found Back in Acts 2, verse 42, remember, you may not, but we, we saw this in Acts 2, verse 42. 
here we go. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as had any need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their houses, they received their food with gladness and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people that the Lord added to their number day by day, those who are being saved. So look, this is the same picture. The church was the same. This is how the early church was. I mean, we're, we're given this Bible study, fellowship, the breaking of bread and prayer. These four things were the basis for the early church. Now, we have a lot of other stuff that's okay, but the bottom line things have to be these four things. The believers had life. How do we get that life? I want to look at what these two passages have to tell us, kind of unpack them. And I'm going to use an acronym because I think acronyms help us remember truths. They're like uh, coat hangers to hang truth on, and, and you can remember what's there because it's, uh, it's handy. So I used an acronym once about what we should what we should think about before we speak, and I use think, T-H-I-N-K, and uh, so is it true? Is it T-H, helpful? (laughs) Is it inspiring? Is it necessary? And is it kind? So those are the things that are, you know, I can remember those truths, whereas I think without the acronym, I wouldn't. So the acronym here is going to be LIFE. There was a life because the people were learning the Word of God. A healthy church and healthy followers of Jesus placed priority on Bible study. The church was birthed out of Bible study, out of the words of the prophets. It was birthed by Um, Peter's sermon where he's just quoting scripture after scripture after scripture and lives were changed because the word of God. We believe that the Bible has the ability to speak supernaturally into our lives. Amen? Amen. Hebrews 4 says God's word is active, it is operative, it's energizing, it's effective in our lives. For the word of God, it says, is alive and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. This book is supernatural, amen? The Bible says that the word of the apostle Paul, he gives thanks to the Christians in Thessalonica, and he says to them, he says, I'm thankful you receive the word of God, and then he says, which is able to do and to perform its work in you. The word of God performs a work in us that nothing else can do. When we're saved, the Holy Spirit comes into us, and then the Holy Spirit will come and open God's word to us. Think think of the pages here being black. 
or being a, a very, very dark color. It's hard for you to see. It's hard to understand. Things don't make sense. But when the Holy Spirit comes into your life, it's like transformation. I can read it. I understand it. I remember before I was saved, uh, people would tell me, Romans 8, I mean, Romans um, chapter 3, the wages of sin is death, but you are justified, you know, freely by his grace and uh, Christ died in my place. I mean, basic things, but I couldn't understand it until finally the Lord broke through. I couldn't understand the words because I was dead spiritually. And then fortunately, my friends persisted and the word of God did its work in my life. The word is supernatural. It's if God said, hey, I've got something I want to say to my people. This is how I'm going to do it. I'm going to talk to that prophet, and I'm going to tell him what to say. Prophet, this is what I want to say to my people. The prophet writes it down. He doesn't add his own words. Then in the New Testament, there's the apostles and the Lord speaks to them and he says, this is what I want to tell my people. Write it down. And say, so they write it down. And that means that these words are inspired by God. We say they are God-breathed. The breath of God. God breathed out and said, light be. And there was a light. I, I, I have this theory that before even the the E of the B came out, the light was. That's how powerful God is. God's word is powerful. It's powerful in the spiritual realm. God's book is alive. I want you to look at Isaiah chapter 55. So hold your place here and go back. It's kind of middle-ish in your Bible. Verse 10, God says, for as the rain and snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making its fruit bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that comes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish what I purpose and shall succeed in the thing which I sent it. Amen. He says, let me show you. He says, it's like this hydrologic uh, system. The rain comes down, you know, it takes care, waters the plants, and the, then it goes back, the moisture goes back in the clouds, you know, it goes around and around. But he says, when the rain comes down, it waters the earth, the seeds sprout, the fruit is gathered. He says, my word is like that. When it goes out, it always succeeds and accomplishes the purpose that I set it out for. Amen, Lord. Praise the Lord. This means that whenever you share the word of God, there is power that goes out. Now, I'm not trying to be weird or thinking like it's, it's magic. But in the spirit realm, when God sends forth it, its word, he says it will succeed and accomplish. So one 
of the top priorities of the church is to learn and to teach. One, two, three. There's four other places in the book of Acts where it says they kept right on teaching. They taught considerable numbers. There was teaching and preaching for a year and six months. They were teaching the word of God. It's over and over and over and over. Because once you get saved, you need to get taught. Or you're just going to have the enemy's going to come and he's just going to mess with you. And because you're untaught, you're going to get beat up and who knows what's going to happen to you. So you come back and you get taught. And God gives teachers. Jesus, the Bible says, gives gifts to the church. And one of those gifts is pastor teachers. I'm a gift of God to you. I, I, not to put my, but God's called me to do from all eternity to do what we're doing right now because we need teachers. And you know, people teach me. I've got a teacher too. I learn from other people as well. But this is, this here is why it's so important for us to gather together and not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together, as is the habit of son, as the book of Hebrews says. We learn God's word. God's word builds us up. Being built up, we become bold and spirit-filled, and we go out to do what the Lord has called us to do. Christians are not learners, uh, are learners, not just observers. The more I know my Bible, the more I know about God. The more I know about God, the more I know about Jesus. And the more I know about Jesus, the more I know about what pleases God. And I find it all here. I don't feel God's presence. I just feel so far away from God. I don't feel, well, for one thing, the problem is you're living by your feelings. And and feelings for me are really important too. But I, I go long times in my life where I don't feel God. I don't stop. I don't feel him because one of my college professors said, I never have gotten, be my feelings what they will. Jesus is my savior still. Be my feelings what they will. Jesus is my savior still. It doesn't matter how I feel. My feelings didn't save me. My feelings don't keep myself safe. But you know where you can go when you don't feel Jesus' presence is you go to the word You go to the word because, as I've said before, these are the pages of his presence. Jesus, um, I'm going to say this, uh, not literally, but Jesus dwells in his word. He's the word became flesh. It's like you want to know, you want to have a talk, a chat with Jesus. Yes, you can pray. But as you go into the word, Jesus, Jesus will give you a message from him. It's just, it's just incredible how the word can build you up. I got to tell you a story about something that happened just a few weeks ago. Um, you know, I'm being transparent and kind of putting my heart out there, not, not for sympathy, not, nothing like that. I just want to, you know, uh, we have lives just like everybody. We don't have a charmed life. We go through junk too. And so uh, we've been going through some really hard times 
Uh, Leslie just, in a marriage, she is so hard to, no, I'm kidding. (laughs) She's back there too. (laughs) We've been going through some hard times. And it's it's probably in the top 10. And um, we were in Prescott at a Goodwill. And I had gotten a phone call and taken it outside and came in. And it just kind of floored me. And, you know, I was so down. And I told Leslie. And, you know, we were both just nearly crying in the line where all the carpets, no, the, the, um, doesn't matter, (laughs) and so, I don't know if we said it exactly, but we just feel like there's not much hope. Well, about that time, this lady comes up to me out of nowhere, I had a t-shirt on, I always wear my cross out. She said, oh, I see your cross. You're a Christian. I said, yeah. You know, like, yeah. She says, I have a word from you from God. Okay. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. And she walked away. (laughs) What is this? Out of all the play, I don't know what the mathematical probability would have been with that, but I'm telling you, we just feel like this thing is hopeless. I have a word of God for for you. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace and believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. Well, man, if you don't have hope by now, you just ain't going to ever get hope, right? (laughs) The Lord spoke to us through his word and through some great servant who was bold and just came up and and initially I thought she was going to be some nut. (laughs) By the end of what she said, we were in tears and when she just kind of left, we were like, did that just happen? <laughs> the word of God does the work of God. Please remember that. The word of God does the work of God. Now, after we've looked at the L, the early church believers were learning. I also see that believers were interceding. That would be the I. They were interceding. They were praying. That's what that means. In Acts 2.42, it says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking bread, and to prayer. The early church is marked by prayer. It is punctuated by prayer. The the whole book of Acts, uh, part of the flavoring of the book is prayer. Over and over, you see, prayer bringing down the Holy Spirit upon them. You see, you see, prayer uh, answered, set prisoners set free by prayer. Their mission outreaches 
all came out of prayer. Where shall we go? What shall we do? The Lord, they prayed and the Lord answered their prayer. They prayed in trouble. It's through the whole book. Prayer, prayer, prayer. You know, I, I look at my prayer life and it, it, my prayer life is not what it should be. This is something that happens at home a lot. As I'm studying and putting together a message, sometimes you just kind of hit the wall and, and you can't think and, and you, you know, you, ugh, nothing's happening. And then all of a sudden, me, I'm in my study. She's nowhere close. She could even be someplace else. And all of a sudden, I feel this like peace and creativity and release, and I, I just start going. And I'll go out maybe for a, a drink of water or uh, for a seminar. I said, man, I just, she said, so I was praying for you. Always at the same moment. Get a little emotional about it. But it is like unbelievable. The power of prayer. Interceding, interceding for people. You can pray for people that, that we aren't, we're on the other side of the globe. We can pray for them and our, and God hears our prayers and our prayers are poured out. I have a theory and, and I'm sharing things that aren't in the Bible. Well, maybe I shouldn't. Anyway, uh, it's a theory. So you don't need to hear theories. You need to hear this. So prayer was a priority. And by the way, they prayed these new Christian disciples of Jesus, they always prayed three times a day. Always three times a day. And we know the last apostle John hadn't died yet, so this wasn't some thing that came in in this tradition. No, the apostle John was doing this too. Three times a day they prayed, and they always, in that prayer, prayed the Lord's Prayer. I'm thinking, they're only a generation, some of them, away from knowing the people that Jesus taught the prayer to. They always prayed the Lord's Prayer and then anything else that God might put on their, hair, their, their, uh, their heart. I thought that was a cool idea. So you can take your phone and you can, you know, put program in your clock or three times a day, or a little, you know, vibration and a little, you know, pong or ping on your phone to remind you to pray. And you don't have to like, excuse me, and go someplace else. You can just, you're sitting there. I, 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 it's happened to me and I'm counseling somebody and I don't say, excuse me. I'll, I'll just, oh, this reminds me, Jesus, you're the wonderful counselor. It sure isn't me. Give me wisdom. Or some, some other time in the day and, and you're thinking, Lord, you are Lord of my time. Or give me grace right now. Or, but three times a day. Isn't it kind of a good idea? It's just a cool idea, I think. The believers were growing because they were in fellowship together. That would be the F. They were in fellowship with one another, and, and, and they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship. 
The word fellowship, it means to give and take. That's kind of the Greek word, koinonia. It means to have something in common, and it also there's the idea of giving and taking, giving and receiving. And that's what our fellowship is. We give to one another. We receive from one another. And that's love. That's Christian family. Jesus said, all the world will see that you are my disciples when you love one another. And I want you to love one another just as I have loved you. And when the world sees that kind of love, the world's going to go, whoa, that is different. Look at how they take care of each other. You know, there is a cult that when you bring it up, usually one of the big things you say is, yeah, but you know what? They really know how to take care of each other, if you know what I'm talking about. They really know how to take care of each other. I want, I want people to say, Calvary Phoenix, wow, they really know how to take care of each other. They're there for each other. And there is a lot, guys, that goes on that we don't talk about and probably should a lot more that goes on with people, for people, by people that is just like what we're seeing here in the early church. They were of all of one heart and one mind, it says. Part of fellowship is staying united. Staying together. Staying united. Ephesians 4 says, Always be humble and gentle. Be patient with each other, making allowance for each other's faults because of your love. Make every effort to keep yourselves united in the Spirit and bind yourselves together with peace. It says, Always be humble and gentle. You know, that'll get you a long way in getting along with with people, right? So you just be humble, you be gentle. You're not going to win. You may take the punches. You may not fight back. Just be humble and gentle. Be patient. I love this next part. Be patient with each other. Make an allowance for others' faults because of your love. The saying, you love people, that means people, people have faults. And you got to make an allowance for that. You need to forgive. Be humble, patient. <laughs> I, was, I was looking at this. It, it, be patient with each other. Make an allowance for each other's faults because of your love. I thought, yeah, marriage, right? <laughs> marriage. Marriage. Sometimes you're, I know, it's been me. I'm nicer to people than I am my wife. And she never says, well, you're so nice to them, but you've been short with me. But that's happened. I know it happened. You know, you're in the drive-thru, and you know, you've made your order, and it's right, and then you pull up to the window. Hi, how are you doing? I'm doing fine. Yeah. Oh, yeah, it's good to see you. You know, I like your glasses. You know, yeah, that's very cool. And then, you know, they're... Taking, then you come <laughs> here's your food. <sighs> Thank you. Don't put it there, it's gonna spill. You know what? Okay, I'll take the next one. Can you relate to that? Yes. Yes. 
So, so this is a matter of, Holy Spirit, take control of me. Hey, we're all faulty, sinful people, but hey, we want to learn from our mistakes, correct? Want to learn from these mis- mistakes. They fellowshiped together. They broke bread together. That means they took meals together. They ate together. Man, there's, there's something about eating with people that, that brings you together and you get to know them better and, uh, Showing up at their house and saying, what do you have to eat? No. But Jesus did that, right? Hey, Zacchaeus, you get down out of the tree because I'm coming to your house tonight. And that was going to be a great meal because Zacchaeus was a, was a millionaire because of how he had ripped people off. Jesus wasn't afraid to eat. His disciples after his resurrection, he's on the beach uh, and he's frying fish or roasting fish. In heaven, it's called the married supper of the lamb. Food, even in heaven. Fellowship around food. And the breaking of bread also uh, is used throughout uh, the scriptures to refer to uh, receiving uh, communion together. They shared with each other. They cared for one another. The E is for evangelism. A church full of life will have a heart for evangelism and outreach. A believer full of life will have a heart for evangelism and outreach. The world needs Jesus. There was an ad in Newsweek magazine that said, Last year, Americans traveled 350 billion miles and never found what they were looking for. (laughs) People need Jesus. That's who they're looking for. I know you believe that. You wouldn't be here if you didn't. They added to their numbers daily. They were sharing Christ. People were coming to Christ. There was evangelism. You say, I'm not called to be an evangelist. Okay, I understand. I'm not called to the street ministry. People have tried to guilt trip me there. Well, you know, you really should go to the street. You know, if you were... And I picked that up from them. But... It isn't my thing, all right? But, but I could make the sandwiches that they take down there. I could do that. That would be fun. I could go and buy the groceries for it, spend money. That's fun, right? Spending somebody else's money is always fun. I could do that kind of thing. But you know what? Making those sandwiches will get the same reward in heaven as the guy on the soapbox that is preaching and invites people to Christ and they get saved. You know that? The same reward. You're not doing it, but you've, you've made it happen. You're, you're, you're the person that was there and without you, that person wouldn't be saved. Without you, those Bibles wouldn't have been bought that they're given. Someone gave the money to buy the Bibles. We did. So when we give, we're not just giving, we gotta have lights, gotta have AC, we gotta have this stuff, but we're also, our primary focus is getting the word out to the world so that families can be transformed, so that kids can grow up differently, so these cycles of drugs and addiction can stop. And there's a whole new generation of people who are loving Jesus. All that stuff stopped 
when their family got saved. People are dying without Jesus. People are dying without him. And we believe, I'm not going to say if we believe, because that implies you don't. We believe since we believe that is the truth, we must do everything we can to keep as many people as we can. We can't, we can't do it all. To do as much as we can to help that happen. And so as we give to the Lord's work, that, you know, not all, but a portion of that goes towards mission. It goes toward these, the Africa, uh, you know, mission that you read about. It goes to street evangelism. It goes to help, uh, get food on people's plates. It goes in the man of ministry. It go, I mean, there's so many things. I just, I've, I've got to stop actually, but it's wonderful. Let's pray. Lord, we're glad to have a part in your mission. We're, we're really glad that we can experience that authentic life, that that life didn't stop with the early churches. The life is moving forward. It's never, it's moving in our lives. And Lord, you, you may have convicted us of something today. If that's true, we receive it. And as you put your arm around us and you turn us around in our walk, I thank you for doing that. And you've you have spoken encouragement to some of us. Thank you. We're so grateful for that. Use these words. We know they've gone forth and they will succeed and accomplish what you've sent them out to do. In Jesus' name, amen. All is stripped away And I simply come Longing just to bring Something that's of worth That will bless your heart I'll bring you more than a song for a song in itself is not what you have required You search much deeper within Through the way things appear You're looking into my heart I'm coming back to the heart of
The following program is called Equipping the Saints, provided by ETS Ministry. Hello, Heart and Soul listeners. I'm Pastor Greg Lundstedt, and I'm so glad that I can share my series from Equipping the Saints with you. I pray that God will grow each and every one of you in Christ through this series. Because in contrast, he says, but I will sacrifice to thee with the voice of thanksgiving. I'm not going to die in that interpretation, but I think it really does point to that. Again, it is a difficult book to interpret. But notice, Jonah, first of all, here's the fruit of discipline. He's thankful. He's in an awful situation, and he's given thanks. 
There's fruit of someone who is being changed by God's discipline. Discipline's not even over yet, and he's starting to thank the Lord, right? Those who regard vain idols forsake their faithfulness, or his faithfulness of you, or his love of you, I think. But I will sacrifice to thee with the voice of thanksgiving. What can he sacrifice there in the whale? Can he put up together a sacrifice? He's going to give thanks. That's how he's going to sacrifice, right? With thanks. It's the first evidence, I believe, that Jonah responded to the severe discipline of the Lord. He's thankful. Don't forget, Jonah's still inside a pitch-black, slimy, acid-filled stomach of a great fish tossing and turning all over the place, yet here we see he is thankful. God's discipline, I believe, has started to begin to change Jonah. Not all the way, but he's changing. He's responding, I believe. Oh, brother and sister, are you thankful for your salvation? Are you thankful to the Lord for what he's done? A lack of thankfulness reveals you're not walking with the Lord. I'll tell you right now, if you don't wake up and start thanking the Lord and spend the day praising him and thanking him, you're walking by yourself. Scripture is full of thankfulness to the Lord. We don't have time to go through the scriptures today, but thankfulness is an evidence of a changed heart. Certainly in the context of salvation, but also in the context of sanctification. The process of God making us like Christ, which he is doing with Jonah through discipline. In the Psalms, which are man's inspired response to God concerning the revelation of God in the Word, we see thankfulness throughout. Psalm 717, I will give thanks to the Lord according to his righteousness, and I will sing praise to the name of the Most High, thankfulness, singing praise, they go like this. That's why it breaks my heart so often when people come to church and they don't sing. Examine yourself, not to sing for other people. Is your heart changed? Do you want to sing to the Lord about what he's done? Psalm 9-1, for the choir director of Muth Laban, a psalm of David, I will give thanks to the Lord with all my heart. I will tell of thy wonders. Psalm 33, 2, give thanks to the Lord with the lyre, and it's a musical instrument. Sing praises to him with a harp and ten strings. Psalm 105, verse 1, oh, give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the peoples. And this spoken multiple times throughout the scripture, including the Psalms. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his chesed is everlasting, his loving kindness. Jonah sees God's chesed. Those who regard vain idols forsake it. Jonah is thankful for his loving kindness. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good, for his loving kindness is everlasting. Psalm 118.1 Give thanks to the Lord of lords for his loving kindness is everlasting. Psalm 136.3 Now thankfulness in the New Testament, a lack of it is an evidence that you are not saved. If you continually, habitually do not give thanks to God, maybe you're not saved. Romans chapter 1, verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. They see creation, God's handiwork, and they suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. Everyone 
sees it. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what he has made, so that they are without excuse. There's enough right there to condemn you. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God, and listen to this, or give thanks. Thankfulness is an evidence of a changed heart in salvation. It's also an evidence that God is changing you in sanctification. Ephesians chapter 5, 18, and do not get drunk with wine. Don't let wine control you, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. Speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your hearts to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God. Giving thanks. Parallel passage helps us understand it. Colossians 3.15, Let the peace of God rule your hearts, which indeed you were called, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell richly within you with all wisdom, teaching, admonishing one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. I believe Jonah's being changed because he's thankful. How do you know if God's discipline is working? Are you thankful? Even if you're still in the midst of that slimy, awful situation that God has allowed, are you thankful? That's the first thing. Jonah's thankful. But what else do we know? And how can we know that God's discipline is bearing fruit? I believe he has a desire to obey. Back in Jonah 2, verse 8 again. Those who regard vain idols forsake their faithfulness or his faithfulness of you, I believe. But I will sacrifice to thee with the voice of thanksgiving. Jonah's thankful in contrast. That which I have vowed I will pay. What is he talking about here? He's in the whale, praying, recalling salvation from death as he was drowning, giving God the glory. And I believe he's acknowledging he's going to obey. Most likely in context, he's going to go to Nineveh. That which I vowed. He's a prophet. I'm going to do it now. I believe that's true because we see in chapter 3, he goes. I think in context, that's most likely what he has vowed to obey the Lord. I'm going to do it. It starts out with the decision, I'm going to obey you, Lord. And God empowers us to do that obedience. Wow, disobedient prophet now desiring to be an obedient prophet. And he does obey, chapter 3. Albeit with a bad attitude, but God is still working on him. Just like those in Haggai. God showed them through discipline. Their lives were futile. Their priorities were out of whack. They weren't about God's business. They made the decision to obey, but yet they still had issues, and God worked on those after they started obeying. I'm not saying obedience is everything. I'm saying we have to have good attitudes. We should have good attitudes. The discipline's going to stop in that area if you do have a good attitude. Jonah didn't, and we'll see that. But he does obey. How do you know that God is causing a change through your life? Are you thankfully obeying him? That's what you know. Am I doing what he said? There's so much scripture concerning what we are to do concerning the body of Christ serving him. There's so much. We don't do it out of guilt. We do it because we're privileged. We're thankful. Lastly, notice more fruit in Jonah's life as he gives all the credit to God. Salvation is from the Lord. 
Those who regard vain idols forsake their faithfulness are most likely his loving kindness of them. But I will sacrifice to thee with the voice of thanksgiving that which I vowed I will pay. Salvation is from the Lord. Jonah had nothing to do with the salvation of himself. It's evident. You can't save yourself from drowning. There needs to be intervention, and God intervened with a whale or a fish, whatever it was. God intervened. He appointed a great fish. You can't save yourself concerning salvation. There's nothing you can do to be saved. You must recognize your utter, complete despair. You're on the precipice of judgment. You cannot save yourself. Salvation is from the Lord. Now, what salvation is Jonah speaking of here? Certainly in context, his physical salvation from drowning, but also he points out about those who forsake his hesed, his loving kindness. I believe he's speaking of their salvation also, which they forsake. Where does salvation come from? It is from the Lord alone. It has nothing to do with man. But where does our salvation from sin come from? Do you remember what the angel told Joseph in Matthew concerning Christ, the Son of God? And she will bear a son, speaking of Mary, and you shall call his name Jesus, for it is he who will save his people from their sins. The word Jesus means the Lord is salvation. Salvation is from the Lord, and it is in the person of Jesus Christ, the God, the Son, who took on human flesh, lived the perfect life, bore our sins in his body on the cross, spent three days and three nights in the tomb, rose from the dead. Salvation is from the Lord, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men which we must be saved. The Lord Jesus brings salvation. It is from God. Add anything to it, it's not from God. Add anything you do, it is not from God. Someone says, do this and trust Jesus. Do that and trust Jesus. It's not from God. Salvation is from the Lord. Jonah cried out to the Lord. God saved him. He was on the verge of physical death, and God saved him. And some of you are on the verge of eternal death, the second death. You are in your sins. You are on the precipice of eternal judgment. But the Lord is salvation. You will never be saved from your sin if you believe it is anything you can do. Salvation is from the Lord. Is faith in Christ alone. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Our sin problem is boasting. God eliminates boasting through faith in the work of Jesus Christ. Jonah declared salvation was from the Lord, and this is fruit of God's heavy hand. God gets all the glory. Thankful, willing to obey, God gets the glory. How do you know if God's discipline's working? There you go. Are you thankful? Willing to obey? Does God get the glory? Can you say in your heart of hearts, like the prophet Micah in Micah 7, 18, who is a God like thee? Who pardons iniquity and passes over the rebellious acts of the remnant of his possession? who does not retain his anger forever because he delights in chesed, unchanging love. Jonah's finally yielded. 
God had to take him to the point of death. How far does God need to go with you before you're willing to obey him? What passages of scripture are you disobeying right now concerning what he's called you to do? Good things, wonderful things. How far will he have to go before you're willing to say, thank you, I'll do what you say. It's all from you. So then we see God's disciplinary hand bringing Jonah near to death. We see the fruit in Jonah's life beginning to appear. Thankful, desires to obey, gives God all the credit. And notice at this point what happens. The end or the ceasing of this element of discipline Verse 8, those who regard worthless idols forsake their own mercy, or I believe it's really speaking of his faithfulness. But I will sacrifice to thee with the voice of thanksgiving that which I have vowed I will pay. Salvation is from the Lord. And then a Hebrew continual action here. Then, verse 10, the Lord commanded the fish and it vomited up Jonah onto dry land. Jonah acknowledged it. Discipline over Jonah at this stage. He vomits up Jonah onto the shore. God speaks, and the text is implying that once Jonah made this declaration, the fish was commanded and vomited him up. That's when God stopped it. The severe discipline is over. Thankful, ready to obey, giving God the glory, vomited up. Now, some of you are in the midst of severe discipline. You're not obeying the Lord. He's called you to serve him and his body. 1 Peter 4, commands are clear. We're to be together to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. Hebrews 10, not forsaking our assembly. We need to think of others as more important than ourselves. Philippians 2, all sorts of verses. But maybe you've been AWOL. Yet if you're willing to obey, God will restore you. Now, it may not be pretty. This is not a pretty sight being vomited onto the shore. He's being restored in the context of vomit. But he's being restored. The discipline is over. At least this stage. Today we've seen God's discipline of a disobedient prophet bringing him to the brink of death, but God was gracious and spared him when Jonah cried out and prayed. When he was fainting away, he cried and God heard him. And we've seen that this discipline bore fruit as he is in the whale and he gives thanks, desires to obey and gives God all the glory. And in the midst of this prayer, the discipline ends as he is vomited up on dry land. God's a compassionate God. He's a good God. Don't let it get this far. The Corinthians let it get too far, some of them. Are you a believer? Do you name the name of Christ? Are you obediently doing what he's called you to do? I don't need to go through it. Just read through First Peter and read through Ephesians, read through Colossians, read through those books and ask yourself, am I doing what you want me to do? Am I willing to do it? Are you serving in the sphere that God has called you, the church, not a building, but the body of Christ? If not, you need to pray. If you've removed yourself like Jonah, you've fled away to some other way to avoid that. It displeases you, maybe. Maybe God has placed you in the same circumstance. You need to pray, confess, be thankful, make a choice to obey, and recognize God is sovereign over it all. And I believe at this time God will have you vomited out of that harsh discipline, like Jonah. How far will God have to go in our lives? He went pretty far in Jonah's. It doesn't have to go that far. Not everyone in Scripture is a Jonah. There are those who trusted the Lord and obeyed the Lord. Are you a non-believer? This story illustrates how far God would go with those who are His. It is appointed man once to die and then the judgment. 
And if you reject Christ, there is the terrifying expectation of judgment. And Scripture declares you'll be thrown into the lake of fire, the second death. But I declare to you today, salvation is from the Lord. If you cry out to Him, whoever cries, calls upon the name of the Lord, that's the Lord Jesus Christ, will be saved. That Christ, same Christ who bore your sins on the cross, who died for your sins, was entombed for three days and three nights, who rose from the dead, cry out to him to save you, he will. If God would go the extent on his children, how far will he go for you? First Peter 4, I want to read this for you as we close. In the context of suffering, For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel? God commands you to believe in Christ. Are you obeying that? God commands you to repent. Are you obeying the gospel? And if it is with difficulty the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless man and sinner? Therefore, let those also who suffer according to the will of God entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. Be thankful. Obey the Lord. Give him all the glory. He's a good God. He's a loving, kind God. He's a compassionate God who saves. Salvation is from the Lord.
We are now ending our Unity in Christ broadcast. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to being with you again next week.